Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program is leading international economist Jared Lyons. Jared spent nearly 30 years working in the city and is now chief economic advisor to the mayor of London, Boris Johnson. In 2010 and 2011, Bloomberg ranked him as number one global forecaster out of nearly 400 economists, so his views on where we're heading economically are worth listening to. I met Jared recently at City Hall in London to talk about his new book, The Consolations of Economics. I wanted to write this book, he says, to challenge some misconceptions, including that we should be cautious about the global outlook. I felt this was far from the truth. The rise of emerging economies does not, Lyons argues, mean the eclipse of advanced ones. To employ one of his favourite metaphors, all boats can rise. Or another, the outcome is likely to be win-win for the West and the East, a multipolar world with a number of key economic players, and the end result being a bigger cake. In the interview, we explore the reasons for his optimism, soft power, the importance of good governance, the place of leading cities in the world economy, and what weight should be given to happiness, among other more readily measurable economic indicators. But I started by asking Jared to tell me a bit about his background. Well, I grew up in London, so, um, and um, yeah, I was very interested in economic political issues, and I studied economics for six years at university at Liverpool, Warwick, and London, and then started on a successful career in the city. So I've always had an interest in global as well as domestic issues, and naturally I've trained as an economist. And before taking on my current role with Boris, I spent maybe five months on average of the year in recent years traveling across the globe. So I tried to bring into this book um, not only my personal experience, but also the global perspective that I've been lucky enough to see at first hand. You didn't sort of bury yourself in in sort of tiny economic questions. You've been looking at the very big macroeconomic forces, really, for, for a long time, haven't you? Yes, and I think a good starting point for this book was the global financial crisis. I was very pessimistic ahead of the crisis, and indeed there were quite a few people, even though the consensus is that the economists were too optimistic. In fact, there's often what I would call a status quo bias in the economics and policy-making profession. That is, before the crisis, because things were good, some people thought the good times would continue forever. And there's a danger now that people have fallen into the same trap, but because things are not so good, in the West in particular, people think they're going to remain bad forever. Therefore, what I've tried to do is almost like when you fly in a plane, when you come into land from 36,000 feet down to eventually landing on the ground, you can look out the window if you're lucky enough to be sitting by the window, and you can see things very differently to even if you were living in that city and working there and living there day to day. So I've tried to allow people to, to see the world in this book from five and six feet, from what's right in front of them, to also see it from 36,000 feet, when you almost look down at the global plate tectonics of what's driving the world economy now, and what I think will drive it in the future. And can I ask, when did you see the signs of optimism begin? Because there must have been a time after the crisis where it, it did seem as though things were really in a, in a disastrous state of disrepair. So when did you begin to see that things might be coming back together? Well, actually, um, very soon after the financial crisis, it was quite noticeable that uh, we had a two-speed world economy. We had emerging economies, or certainly some of them, 
led by China, doing well, and the Western economies not doing so well. And then at the beginning of last year, we seemed to have a three-speed world economy, fast, middle, slow lane, like a UK highway. Now we seem to have a sort of multi-speed, like a US highway world economy, where all different countries are going at different speeds all over the place, which adds to the confusion. And hence, in this book, I try to cut through that and explain what's driving things. But coming back to your question, I think it was relatively soon after the financial crisis became evident that the global balance of power was changing, was shifting. It's important though to stress that emerging economies, the likes of China, India, clearly have business cycles. They clearly will have setbacks. Many of the things we take for granted in the West, the policy institutions, are not embedded in these countries. So while they will do well in the future, it will be sort of a erratic path at times for them, but certainly in an upward direction. But very importantly, I think it's necessary in the West to step back and look at what's happening, not just on the ground now, where there's considerable uncertainty, but also at what lies ahead. And therefore in the book, I explain why Western economies should be more optimistic than they currently are. So what attributes in particular do you think Western economies have that, that make them well positioned for recovering? Well, they all differ in some way, shape and form, uh, but infrastructure is an important theme. And I do touch on this in the book. But there are three types of infrastructure. There's hard infrastructure, road, rail. There's soft infrastructure, which is skills, education. But also, very importantly, there's institutional infrastructure, the ability to hold companies to account, the ability to ensure the correct governance, the correct legal framework. And in answer to your question, some Western economies have good infrastructure of the hard kind, and some of them don't go to America, for instance. Soft infrastructure at the top end, America, particularly London, but also France even, and other countries in Western Europe have very good soft inf infrastructure, skills, education. But the other thing that many Western economies have is the institutional infrastructure. But it does differ, and therefore it's important to actually sort of identify not just the global themes that are driving things, but also some of the regional and also some of the national characteristics. So it's global, regional and national, and you need to look at all of those. You talk about the West and its brands and its ability to innovate. I, I wondered though as I was reading the book, is it possible to imagine a future in, in which Eastern economies are creating brands and innovating in a way, and our brands become kind of like heirlooms and you know have a certain attraction, but are kind of trampled underfoot in, in, as new brands come on stream. Yeah, well, soft power is a concept that's been around in recent years, and I touch on that. Soft power is an important driver, and one aspect of soft power is brands. And this is very relevant for young consumers, and you see that here in the West, but you're right in your question. The brands may be dominated by the West at the moment, but there's already evidence of brands changing. And indeed, that's one of the most exciting things about the world economy. You look back and you see that things have changed in the past. Indeed, I talk about giant redwoods, an example used by economists in the past when you look at forests and how things change. But yeah, you're already seeing brands from the East being consumed here in the West. And indeed, look at some of the big sports teams. They're sponsored by brands from the Middle East or from Asia. And I think that's going to continue to change. The important thing is adaptation, change, 
and people investing for the future, people being companies as well as individuals. You talk a lot about innovation in the book, and that, that I guess is where the soft power attributes you were mentioning of education and, and infrastructure and those, those soft power things come in. Yes, um, there are many important economic drivers, population, the new middle class, urbanization, but also, very importantly, investment and innovation. There are some really smart people out there saying that the world economy is in bad shape and one of the reasons why is that it's not going to be able to innovate. I completely and utterly disagree with that. We've seen people argue similar things in the past, but what you actually see when you look around the world at the moment is innovation in many different areas from robotics, from medical science, addressing the needs of the young. But also, as you ask in your question, you're seeing lots of people invest in themselves. Educational skill levels are rising. And that's an interesting challenge for the future. And also, as people get older, it creates new opportunities. As people get to what used to be called middle age, they now still have a long time ahead of them. And they will have the ability to use new innovative ways of communication to actually learn new skills. So there's lots of things going on. So innovation is one of the important drivers and I think it will be a key factor in the future. Now obviously good governance is a key facilitator of the world economy and in your chapter on that you talk about the G7 and the G8 and the G20 and the WTO and the IMF and the World Bank. I wonder if, if that is perhaps an area where a lot more serious thinking has to be done to really get the, the world economy pointing in the right direction because you you highlight just how many different bodies there are and how many different yeah. vested interests. Well in fact governance comes up in a number of ways in the book. In particular I have a whole chapter about the financial sector and what caused the financial crisis and the lessons from the financial crisis and governance was one of the four G's that I said caused the financial crisis or indeed the lack of appropriate governance. But your question is about governance in the broader context. And one of the interesting changes is how we've moved from the G7 to the G20. Some people say we might move to a G2. G7 is a group of seven industrialized countries, the G20, the 20 industrialized countries. But we need to make these policy institutions accountable, credible, and effective. So that is still up for grabs. It's not a case of people turning up at meeting rooms and sitting around the table and thinking they've done their bit. They need to interact and then they need to execute, put into practice what's agreed and address the big issues. When you actually look at world trade, the World Trade Organization used to argue for multilateral trade. That didn't work out, so we have a second best. Still is good, but not as great as it could be. So we have bilateral and regional trade deals. Global trade flows are changing, but if we look at the recent years, even in the area of trade, you can see people naturally protect their vested interests. What is really interesting is that when people have more confidence about the future and they understand the context in which things are changing, then I think they tend to embrace change and interact better. But yeah, in the book I talk about how global policy institutions and global policy issues are a key area and I think that will be an exciting area to focus on in coming years. How much account does the book take of geopolitical threats and also climatological ones? Yeah, I, I, I've spent, as I touched on earlier, so much time travelling, particularly to where I think the key hotspot is, which is East Asia. The interaction, the relationship between um, China, Japan 
and ultimately between China and the US is key. And in the book, I mention what I think are President Obama's two key words, which help explain why that region is so important. So I think geopolitics is a very important factor and a very important part of the story. So yeah, the book tries to cover a whole range of relevant, understandable and important issues. And what about climate? Because that, that, that yeah, could really climate. blow a huge hole, couldn't it, in the world economy if, yeah. um, if things really start to dysfunction seriously? Yeah, I, I tend to come down on the side that global warming is a concern. I touch on Lord Nick Stern's report in the book, and I think Lord Stern was right. Climate change means that we need to take action now. Now, some people won't buy into that, but whether you buy into it or not, one interesting way is to look at it in terms of risk versus return and the risks of doing nothing versus the returns from actually doing something. And if we leave it too late, the downside risks are considerable. In fact, if we start to address some of the climate issues that are already apparent, then actually that is one of the innovative ways in which the world economy will benefit the whole green technology. And indeed, China's 12 to 5 year plan, a key driver of the Chinese economy, talks about the need to boost consumer spending, the need to boost social welfare, but also the need to address the green economy. So I think climate change is an issue. And indeed, I think, as I say again, very important, whether you're looking now or longer term, you need to always be aware of the possible risks and to put them in perspective. You talk about the importance of cities as wealth generators, as centres of innovation and, and creativity. And here we are standing in, in central London looking at the city of London. And I wondered if the polarisation of the economy is something that you see becoming more marked. Polarisation between a rich centre, a rich capital, and then a, a hinterland which doesn't really share in the same benefits. Yeah, well, there are lots of potential imbalances and not just in one economy, but many different economies. And some countries face this issue that you ask about more than others. Yet yeah, urbanization is the name of the game in many parts of the world as more people move to cities. Now, that brings with it challenges, but it also brings with it opportunities. Many of the new cities are very different to how we perceive cities in the past. Indeed, it's amazing to think 20 years ago, we would have been talking about cities, about shanty towns and poverty. Now we're talking about prosperity and sort of how cities, as you say in your question, are innovating. So um, yeah, there are issues, but I think it's not just about cities. When you look at what's happening, the balance of global income that's going to wages has been falling. I raise the question of whether we need to see unions come back into more prominence in some parts of the world. There are rising inequalities, but in different parts of the world, it needs to be put in perspective of what's happening in the broader economy. Where the global cake is getting bigger, or the economic cake in a particular country is getting bigger, some of these issues tend to become less of a concern. But certainly where growth rates slow, then some of these issues come more to the fore. But it comes back to one of the points we were talking about earlier, the need to plan, the need to sort of be aware of these. But yeah, I don't think anyone should kid themselves. There are some significant differences. But uh, bring it all together, while I, I really do think the issue of inequalities and imbalances between coastal and inland areas, urban versus rural areas, environmental issues that we've touched on, when you look at it, the global middle class is growing. The overall cake is getting bigger. And there are changes 
And maybe the key message is for people to embrace change. There's a natural tendency to fear any change as if though where you currently are now is as good as you are ever going to be. But the reality is that historically, change has tended to be good. And I talk about all the reasons why we should be positioning ourselves to benefit from the changes that I think are already happening and likely to continue to happen in the future. You say one point in the book, um, mobility is key, and presumably you mean more than just physically relocating yourself, although that's presumably part of it, but the willingness to, to, think, you know, to think beyond the current the p- paradigm. Yeah, but obviously we also need to appreciate that some people will find it hard to change and social welfare systems are important as we see in Germany, as we see in other parts of the world. So I do talk about that. So yeah, not everyone can change. Not everyone is completely skilled um, and we have to accept that. And not everyone is able to do wonderful things. But in any economy, uh, there's a tendency to think you want the high-skilled jobs. The reality is that you want high-skilled and low-skilled jobs. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of immigration. We shouldn't underestimate what I call the three Ds, the dirty, the dangerous, the demeaning jobs. You might not want to do them, but you need to respect and appreciate the people who are doing them because they're jobs that are very important. So I do touch on these issues. So, but overall, where you are able to innovate and change and position yourself, then economies should be able to encourage that and create an enabling environment in which that can happen and occur. In the recent last you know, decade or so, some economists have started looking at not just measures of GDP, but also happiness and trying to assess that. And I know that's a difficult thing to do, but how much of an importance does that have in, in your sort of picture for the future? Yeah, I do, in one place, outline the ideal situation that I think you would want in an economy. And the list is long. But often when you write long lists about things, you think, gosh, how few of the things you can tick off. But what's amazing is that in a number of places, there's lots of ticks. And where there aren't ticks, many of the things that aren't ticked are easily achievable. And the issue of happiness, happiness is measured in different ways for different people. It's about financial rewards for some people. It's about having the proper safety nets, rather, is it's the quality of life. All of these are important issues, yes. But different people will have different value judgments. Can I ask you in conclusion for a, a bit of prognosis because you're, you're famed for the, um, the, the success rate of your prognoses. I think you, you won an international poll two years running, didn't you, post, post-crisis. So can, tell me, what do you think is going to happen to the UK housing market? Because there are increasing fears that a bubble is growing in London and um, that is distorting the whole economy. Okay. Well, if we look at Britain, the population is rising significantly. Here in London, the population is rising 100,000 a year. What we really need to do in Britain is to address the supply side issue, build more property, and so that so-called takes the heat out of the market. It's about investing in the sort of infrastructure, but the housing infrastructure. In answer to your question, I think the UK housing market will continue to rise in the near term. Interest rates, when they rise, are normally the way to take the heat out of the market but UK interest rates still need to remain relatively low in the near term. The governor of the Bank of England has talked about interest rates staying low, going up gradually, and then peaking at a low level. In the book, I talk about this in more general terms, how, yes, certainly I would agree that interest rates need to stay low, rates need to go up gradually, but I do point out that in previous recent cycles, one of the problems in the West has been that when monetary policy has tightened, rates have peaked at too low a level. And to conclude relative to your housing question, in the book I do talk about MIP, MAP and MOP. 
microprudential, macroprudential, and monetary policy. Thankfully, I don't go into all the detail on that, but it's aimed at explaining that there are other tools in the central bank's toolkit to help them address some of these key issues, such as rising house prices. Jared Lyons. His book, The Consolations of Economics, is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. And the complete audio archive is also available on SoundCloud. Search for SoundCloud Faber Books. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.